We're going to read from the Bible together. We're going to be thinking today about Jesus and Nicodemus from John chapter 3, a really well-known passage with very familiar verses in it. We're actually going to begin the reading not in John chapter 3, but in John chapter 2, the end of John chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 23 of John chapter 2 and right down to the end of verse 21. And as we read, let's remember, this is the Word of God. It's absolutely perfect, and so we can trust it completely. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Great. Well, if you have a Bible, please do turn with me to John chapter 3. Um, why don't we take just a moment to pray together before we come to look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray now as we come to look at it that you will help us 
that you will take away anything that might distract us from hearing your voice and that together we might magnify the Lord Jesus and rejoice in all that he has done and all that he has won for us in the gospel. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, Let me ask you, do you recognize the image that's about to come up on the screen? Um, Many of you will have walked past it, I'm sure, uh, perhaps on your way to Morelli's or back from Morelli's with a big ice cream in your hand, or maybe from Awaken with a slightly overpriced flat white, depending on where you are in the age demographic, perhaps. Those words, you must be born again, are perhaps amongst the most best known from anywhere in the Bible. If you haven't seen them in Port Stewart, then you will almost certainly have seen them on your travels somewhere around Northern Ireland, posted up on a tree or inscribed on a wall somewhere. But we don't just see them as we drive around or walk along the coast, do we? We also hear them every so often. If you have been following the news this week and U.S. politics in particular, you will have noticed that Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus this week, and you will have noticed the media making much of the fact that white, born-again, evangelical Christians voted overwhelmingly for the former president and are actually predicted to keep doing so throughout the rest of the campaign. One suspects that we will hear that phrase, born-again, evangelicals, quoted quite a bit in political analysis throughout the rest of this year. But even though those words are well-known and still used in common parlance, it is also true to say that they are somewhat misunderstood. And so we need to ask some questions about what exactly these words mean and who said them and to whom were they said and in what context and what was the end result. And perhaps most significantly of all, what, if anything, do they mean for us today? Those are some of the questions that I want us to explore as we work our way through this marvelous passage, thinking about this fascinating face-to-face encounter between the Lord Jesus and this man, Nicodemus. To begin with, let's say a little bit about the context in which this encounter takes place, and then some biographical information on Nicodemus himself. The setting, first of all, to help us with that, we do have to go back to those verses that I began the reading with, the verses at the end of chapter 2. Look at those verses with me just for a moment. We'll read them again. It says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in each man. So John the evangelist who compiles all of these events for us, tells us both where and when this particular encounter happens. It takes place in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast, verse 23. But John also gives us some detail about the different kinds of people that were engaging with and responding to Jesus at this particular time in his ministry. Did you notice that? Closely at the end of verse 23, John tells us that many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Now, at this point in John's gospel, there has only actually been one sign that Jesus has done that John has explicitly told us about, where he turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. But clearly, Jesus has been forming other miracles, signs, that caused people to believe in him. Now, we do have to be careful about what that word believe actually means here, because it doesn't, I don't think, mean saving faith. 
In fact, lots of people are believing in Jesus, but they're only really doing so on account of His miracles. The basis of their faith at this point is merely the signs that He has been doing. And of course, as we read any encounter in John's gospel, we're meant to do so with the overarching purpose of John's gospel ringing in our ears. John tells us right at the very end of his gospel that he has written all of these things so that we might believe, but specifically so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So actually, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is the crux of the issue. And to believe that he is the Christ is, of course, to believe something very important about him, namely that he is God's anointed rescuer king who has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But to believe that he is the Christ is also to believe something very profound and painful about ourselves, namely that we are those in need of being rescued, that there actually is something that we cannot do for ourselves. And the people at the end of John chapter 2 do not believe in Jesus in that kind of way, They do not, it seems, recognize that he is the Christ, so they have both a distorted view of him and also of themselves. The result being in verse 24 that Jesus is incredibly cautious with these people. He is wary of them even. We're told that he did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He knows their hearts. And so he knows that they have not yet grasped him or his message. Why does all of that matter for us? Well, it helps us to understand that when we arrive at chapter 3 and we're introduced to Nicodemus, that he is one of those people who has been interested in Jesus, but who has not yet fully understood him. In fact, even the the linguistic skill with with which John writes these verses encourages us to see that. So look at the the end of chapter 2. It says, He, Jesus, did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Then chapter 3 and verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So John wants us to make the link between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and the conversation that follows. So we know that Nicodemus has some level of interest in Jesus, We know that he is respectful of Jesus. That's highlighted by his respectful tone in his conversation with Jesus in verse 2. He calls him rabbi. He recognizes that he can only do the things that he has been doing because he has been sent from God. So Nicodemus is interested in Jesus. He respects Jesus. He even appreciates that there is something godly about Jesus. And yet, we are about to see that Israel's teacher still has much to learn. Notice briefly as well some of the other details that John gives us about Nicodemus. Chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that he was a Pharisee. That means that he would have been a very religious man. He would have known his Old Testament inside out, which is important for the conversation that's about to unfold. He would have been morally very serious, perhaps quite wealthy, no doubt highly respected, as well as being theologically and religiously and culturally very conservative. Verse 1, we're also told that he was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. That was a group of 70 men who had jurisdiction over different aspects of Jewish life, a legislative court that was very involved in the political and religious affairs of the day. So Nicodemus is likely someone with at least some level of influence in the public square. And then notice in verse 2 that we're also told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. 
It's an interesting little detail, isn't it? I think when we, we picture all of this happening at night, it heightens the sense of drama in the conversation that follows. These whole words are being spoken under the cover of darkness. It intensifies the whole encounter. It's a bit like in, in Traitors. Some of you, I'm sure, have been watching the, the program on BBC. When do the traitors get together to murder someone or to seduce someone? They get together in the turret at night. It intensifies the drama of what's happening. That's a little bit of what's going on here. The whole sense of the, the drama of the conversation is heightened and intensified because it happens at night. But there's also theological significance in the fact that this encounter happens at night. In John's gospel, the word night always has negative connotations. When John uses the term darkness, he does so to refer to evil or untruth or unbelief. So, for example, the only other actor in John's gospel who meets Jesus at night or who walks out into the night after having met Jesus is Judas Iscariot in John chapter 13 after he leaves the Last Supper to go and betray Jesus. Now, that is not to lump Nicodemus in with Judas necessarily, but it is to say that whenever we read chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes to have his one-to-one -one encounter with Jesus at night, we're meant to understand, I think, that he is in a state of spiritual darkness. He does not see spiritual reality clearly. Specifically, he does not see that Jesus is the Christ. He does not see the depth of his own spiritual needs he comes to Jesus in the dark, and it really is nighttime, but at a deeper level, the darkness is a metaphor for his own spiritual darkness. And understanding that is really important for understanding the conversation that unfolds. So as we get into things here, I want us to see, actually, even when we look at the, the whole chunk of Scripture that we read, that this passage has been written in such a way and structured in such a way that it contains both a conversation and also an explanation. So the actual conversation happens in verses 1 to 15. It's a series of questions and answers between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. And then from verse 16 onwards, the famous verse, for God so loved the world, from verse 16 onwards, those verses are not actually part of the conversation. In fact, those verses, I think, are John's commentary or theological reflection on the conversation that has unfolded in verses 1 to 15. Now, in, in many of your Bibles, that won't be immediately obvious. I suspect that actually verses 16 to 21 in many of your Bibles will still be in quotation marks. And in some of your Bibles, if it's like mine, the words in verses 16 to 21 will still be in red letters as if they are attributed to the Lord Jesus himself. But I don't think that those verses did actually come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. In fact, the, the Bible in the pew, I looked at it quickly, footnote H, I think it is, suggests that some commentators break the passage up at the end of verse 15 and then go on to say that John is commenting in verses 16 to 21. That's all a bit nerdy, I get that. If you want to chat to me about why you think that's the case afterwards, come and join me in my nerdiness and we can talk a bit about that. I'm very happy to chat to you about that. The reason I highlight it is because I think the conversation itself actually stops at verse 15. And for our sex this morning, we're going to think about this one-to-one -one encounter, and we're only going to do so as we look up to verse 15. So let's look at it together then. We can imagine that this whole conversation was actually much longer than what John records for us here. He gives us the, the match of the day highlights of what, it was, what went on in this conversation. I suspect it went long into the night. 
But as I said earlier, we see in verse 3 that Nicodemus starts with a respectful comment about Jesus performing signs, indicating that he is from God, and Jesus immediately respectfully responds by saying, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It is a fascinating response, and with it, Jesus pinpoints Nicodemus' problem and actually highlights the heart of the human problem, that unless we are born again, unless we are born from above, unless we have a comprehensive transformation of our hearts, then we simply cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God is synonymous with entering the kingdom of God. And for Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a morally upright and conservative man, he would have expected to enter the kingdom of God, and he would have expected to do so by virtue of his Jewishness. He thought it was his birthright. The only exceptions for him would have been those who had denied or abandoned the Jewish faith, but Nicodemus was as upright and as devout as they come. He expected that the reward for his devotion would be entrance into the kingdom of God. And yet with his response in verse 4, Jesus is in effect saying to him, Nicodemus, you are wrong. Everything that you have thought about how to relate to God needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed again in light of who I am and what I am going to do. You cannot relate to God on the basis of your goodness. You need to start over. You need to think again. You need to be born again. Those are incredibly provocative words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. I'm sure as we, we meet in church today, we all know people who, in as much as they think about God at all, think that they can relate to Him on the basis of their own goodness. Perhaps you have friends or colleagues or family that think like that. Perhaps you even find yourself in church here this morning, and at your very deepest level, you think like that yourself. One of the most incredible and controversial and important things that the Lord Jesus teaches us is that we cannot relate to God on the basis of our goodness. We cannot look inside of ourselves in order to save ourselves. Actually, we need outside help if we are to see the kingdom of God. Earlier on this week, uh, I watched uh, a movie with our kids, Zootropolis. Anybody seen Zootropolis? Put your hand up if you've seen Zootropolis. Some of you have. <coughs> it's, a, it's a brilliant movie about <coughs> excuse me, a, a bunny rabbit who becomes a police officer and arrives in this city called Zootropolis. Um, Zootropolis, by the way, is famous for being the city where anyone can be anything. It's incredibly modern in its themes. But at the very end of the movie, Judy Hopps, the little bunny rabbit police officer, has been a very successful detective. She is asked to give a graduation speech to the new recruits who are arriving in the city of Zootropolis to be police officers. And in that speech, it is a wonderful speech that captures the essence of the movie, but also the essence of the spirit of our age. Listen to what she says. Real life is messy. We all have limitations. We all make mistakes, which means, hey, glass half full, we all have a lot in common. So far, so good. The more we try to understand one another, the more exceptional each of us will be. But we have to try. So no matter what type of animal you are, from the biggest elephant to our first fox, I implore you, try. 
Try to make the world a better place. Look inside of yourself and recognize that change starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with all of us. Ugh. <laughs> now, there is some truth in there, isn't there? There's some good things about what she says. But in a sense, that message is so dangerous and so deceptive because there are kernels of truth in there. We cannot look inside of ourselves to save ourselves. We are not the solution to our deepest problem. Incidentally, it's great that, that your children here are being catechized and taught really important truths about God. You also need to know that every time you engage in popular culture, your children are being catechized by someone else and by something else. And oftentimes, that catechesis is much more compelling and much more powerful than what happens here. And you need to disavow yourself of the notion that five minutes here and 20 minutes out there is going to get it done for discipleship of children and young people. We have so much work to do to think about how we shape and form them. That wasn't in the script, by the way. Sorry about that. Jesus is saying here in John chapter 3 that we are utterly powerless to bring about real, lasting, spiritual transformation by ourselves. We need outside help. We need a renewal of our entire selves. We need to be born again. So for your friends, your colleagues, or your family, who believe that they can relate to God on the basis of their goodness, or who think that the answers to the world's problems can simply be look within and try, we need to pray. We need to pray that God would open their eyes so that they can see the depth of their spiritual need and understand what it means to be born again. You cannot make anyone see that. I cannot make anyone see that. Only God can make people see the depth of their spiritual need and the solution that he has provided in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus then comes with another question in verse 4, and it's a question about how this new birth can happen. It is an incredulous response to Jesus' words that actually reveals his lack of understanding. And Jesus responds with another answer. It's a lengthier one this time in verses 5 to 8. His response really is to restate his original answer in verse 3 with some expansive comments. And in particular, he talks about being born of the Spirit. I want you to look closely with me at verse 6. Two things of note from verse 6. First of all, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, which really is a summary of the entire human race in five words. When the Bible talks about our flesh, it describes both our frailty, our weakness, and our limitations as human beings, but it also talks about our feelings our natural sinful condition. Human beings are, according to Jesus, born with this inherent problem of fleshiness. We are corrupted from within. That is true of every single human being who has ever lived. We aren't born morally neutral and corrupted from without by our circumstances, our environment, our upbringing, our experiences, or whatever. No, we are born corrupt. That's why David writes in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That is the story of human beings. It is a summary of the entire human race. That way of thinking about humanity is increasingly unpopular in our cultural moment. It will become much more contested in the years ahead. 
But we need to remember what Jesus says in John 3 and remember what the Bible teaches as a whole, that flesh gives birth to flesh, that we are both sinners by nature and sinners by practice. We are corrupted from within. But Jesus goes on in verse 6 to say that the Spirit gives birth to spirit. And this is our hope, that the solution to our problem, to our fleshiness, to our sinfulness, is a life that comes down to us from above, life that comes from the outside. Now, most of the scholars agree that the particular Old Testament passage that Jesus has in mind here when He uses this language of water and the Spirit is Ezekiel chapter 36, particularly verses 25 to 27. Let me read those. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So really Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here and to us that to be born again means an inner transformation must take place. A change from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh. Flesh here meaning soft, not frail or fallen like we saw in verse 5. John Calvin puts it brilliantly commenting on these verses. He says, by the words born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. When you think about your heart, we do not need to tweak our hearts. Tweaking is what you do to a badly worded sentence or your golf swing. We need to have our hearts broken open and renewed. We need to have new hearts. And that can only happen by a work of God's Spirit. Notice well in, uh, as well in verse 8 how Jesus talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, compares it to the wind and says that it blows wherever it pleases. That comparison between the wind and the Spirit is an interesting one. Jesus is saying that in the same way that the wind cannot be controlled by human beings, neither can the Spirit of God. And yet, that doesn't mean that we cannot see the effects of the Spirit in the same way that we can see the effects of the wind. Whether it's leaves blowing almost imperceptibly in a light breeze, or trampolines catapulting through the air in the middle of a storm, we can see the effects of the wind, can't we? So it is with the Spirit of God. We can see His work in people's lives. And perhaps as you think about your friends and your colleagues and your family, this is something for you to be praying for, and this is actually something for you to be looking out for. Little glimpses of the Spirit of God at work in their lives, drawing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That might work itself out in lots of different ways for your friends and family and colleagues, and heightened interest perhaps in talking about the things of God, an interest in the Bible for the first time, an interest perhaps in coming to church with you, an interest in starting to pray for the first time in a long time or for the first time ever. Little glimpses, evidences of the Spirit of God at work in people's lives. We must never underestimate that God can do whatever He wants, wherever He wants, with whomever He wants, and that He will work in ways that completely confound us. At our GYD conference last week, we heard a, a, a testimony from a, a girl who uh, now works in a church in England, 
Whenever she went to university, she was not a Christian, not brought up in a Christian home. She was in a lesbian relationship and was a passionate gay rights activist when she went to university. She was also studying biomedical scientists, was a complete atheist, being taught her course from a very atheistic perspective. But she had one other person on her course. She was a Christian. And the Christian befriended her and kept inviting her to church. And she kept saying, no, don't want to go to church. Kept inviting her to church, saying, no, I don't want to go to church. Eventually, her friend invited her to come and hear her play, play the flute publicly for the first time. Her friend said, yes, I'd love to do that. When is it happening? Where is it happening? It's happening at church. She came along. And when she went to church, she met the pastor of the church. She heard what it was that he was saying. And she thought, this is it. This is my moment. I am going to tell him why I hate Christians and everything that they believe in. And she did. And she went for him at the end of the service. The pastor was brilliant with her, incredibly patient and gentle. She finished her degree, went on to work. That friendship fizzled out, as friendships can do after university. But some years later, her life was completely falling apart. She remembered her Christian friend. She remembered how that minister was with her. She woke up one Sunday morning. She went to a different church, church in her hometown. She walked in, and the minister read the story of the Good Samaritan and said at the beginning of his sermon, if you've heard this story before, you think it's about being nice to other people, let me tell you why that's not what it's about. And he began to preach the gospel. And over the course of the next weeks and months, she was drawn to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She now works in a church, teaching children and young people and working with women helping them understand more of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God will blow where He wishes. And He will do His work oftentimes in ways that surprise us and confound us entirely. I hope that is actually an encouragement for us as we think about living for Him. Final question comes from Nicodemus then in verse 9. He's mystified. He asks, how can this be? Jesus responds with a, a rebuke in verse 10, and then another lengthier answer in verses 11 to 15. You will have noticed, I'm sure, that on each occasion, Jesus answers with the words, I tell you the truth. You see that in verse 3 and verse 5, and again in verse 11. Nigel did a really good job explaining that for you last week. It is a, a marker of his authority. His words are not sage advice, but rather they come to us with the very power and authority of God. So when he speaks, we need to listen carefully. And this time when he speaks, Jesus talks about an Old Testament story that comes from the book of Numbers. That's what he's talking about in verses 14, 15. Look at them again with me. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, would have known that reference, of course, Back in the book of Numbers, God's people were journeying between Egypt and the promised land. And in chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, a plague comes upon them. It's a plague sent by God because of the people's sin. It's a plague of venomous snakes. And the venom starts to kill the people. And the only way that they can have salvation from this plague is to look at this bronze serpent that Moses holds up in the desert. As the, the serpent is held up on the pole, expelled from the earth, suspended between heaven and earth. The people are to look, and as they look, they are healed from their illness, and they find salvation. And Jesus takes this incredible image from the Old Testament, and he uses it to refer to himself. It would be as he was lifted up on the cross, expelled from the earth, 
suspended between heaven and earth, that he would reverse the effects of the curse of sin, and as people look to him, they too can be healed and live. Jesus takes this profound Old Testament picture to describe his own work for sinners. And in doing so, he is explaining to Nicodemus and to us how it is that we can be born again. We must look to Jesus if we are to live. Not within ourselves, not to our religious heritage, not to our moral uprightness, not even to our theological conservatism, only by looking to Jesus and all that he has done for us in the gospel can we truly be born again. I wonder as you find yourself in church today, if you were really honest, where is it that you have really pinned your hopes for eternal life? In many ways, the whole point of this encounter is that we must see that it is only by looking to Jesus that we can be born again, and only by looking to Jesus can we have any hope of eternal life. Last thing, there's one other thing I want us to notice. We're almost done. The question that might have been rumbling around in your head as we have worked our way through this is how does it all pan out? How did Nicodemus respond? Did he finally understand what it meant to be born again? Well, what does John 3 say? In a masterful piece of storytelling, John doesn't actually tell us. Not here, at least. Nicodemus does appear again twice more in John's gospel. Once in John chapter 7, when he speaks to defend Jesus against uh, false accusations. But then, most significantly, he appears again in John chapter 19. And in verse 39, there we read about him that along with Joseph of Arimathea, he is taking down the body of the Lord Jesus from the cross and prepares it for burial. In fact, we're also told that Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, spices for burying the body. That was an incredibly lavish gesture, by the way. That was an amount of spices fit for a royal burial. And all of that, his public identification with Jesus at the hour when all others had abandoned him, his involvement in the burial, the large number of spices that he brought, has led some scholars to believe and conclude that Nicodemus was converted. Some even suggest that he was a model example of the kind of belief that John hoped readers of his gospel would experience. If that is indeed the case, then we do need to observe that it takes time for Nicodemus to put all of the pieces in place, as it were. Change happens slowly for him. It is not instantaneous. Him taking the body, down of, the, him taking the body of the Lord Jesus down from the cross happens probably at least a couple of years after this encounter in John chapter 3. And perhaps as we think about our witness to others, that ought to be an encouragement for us as well. That change, if it happens at all, might well be slow and incremental and happen for different people in different ways at different times. However, we should say that the fact is that we aren't explicitly told how Nicodemus responds to Jesus' claims over his life. And I think that is actually intentional. Because as we read this encounter, it is meant to function as a mirror for us. So as we read the story of Nicodemus and wonder how it is that he responds to the Lord Jesus, at a much deeper level, we're meant to be asking ourselves the question, who do I think this Lord Jesus is? 
And how is it that I am going to respond to Him? We're meant to be asking ourselves questions that we're not sure how it is Nicodemus responds to. Do we believe that He is the Christ? Do we see what it means to be born again? Are we truly born of the Spirit? And if so, is there evidence of His work in our lives? Do we see just how much God loves us, that He really did send His one and only Son? And do we believe in that Son, and in so doing, have the hope and assurance of eternal life? That's why this one-to-one encounter is in the Bible. And in a very real sense, our answers to those questions are the most important things about us. This fascinating encounter with some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture are forcing us to face up to the most fundamental questions about what it means to be a human being. Are we recognizing that Jesus is the Christ? Do we recognize that we are much more flawed than we care to admit? That we cannot look within? That we need help from outside? And that we must have it in order to have eternal life? Friends, it's my hope that you can say yes to that question, that you have been born again. And I trust that as you labor on and seeking to see others one for the Lord Jesus, that you will see much fruit in your endeavors to see others come to know and trust in Him.